We uh, are continuing in our series called The Kingdom Now. Uh, and we're, Jason kind of gave us a, a blank check and said, you can really, if you want to just do a one-off message. And I was like, why don't we just lean into what we're doing and we'll just try to make something happen. And so Acts chapter three, immediately following uh, the passage that, that pastor has been spending a lot of time in towards the end of Acts chapter two, studying the church. And so the structure this morning will also look a little bit different. I will kind of get us started reading through this narrative and um, pointing out some things that kind of would be helpful maybe to, to you and to me. And then at some point, uh, Trevor Gehring, who's our student associate, will join me and he'll kind of carry us a little bit further in the message. And then I'll come back around and put a bookend on it. Um, and uh, so what that sounds like to you is that we are going to be here for an hour and a half. Um, and you're wrong, it'll be closer to two hours, um, but uh, we're gonna make things happen today. So we're gonna hustle, you'll listen fast and I'll go as fast as I can. Acts chapter three and verse one, it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And a man who was lame from birth was being carried there and he was placed each day at the temple gate called beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temples. And when he saw Peter and John, that being the man about to enter the temple, he asked for money. In verse four, Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. And so he turned to them expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk in verse seven. Then taking him by the hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So before we go any further, oftentimes I know it's possible for you and for me to read stories like this and to become very familiar with things that really shouldn't be familiar to us at all. And sometimes for you and for me, we automatically plug ourselves into these stories, but we typically do that in the direction of Jesus or the disciples, or the church leaders, or the apostles, or the, the person who's doing the work of ministry, like, well, how can I relate to that, that person, right? But I want us to flip that for just a second and consider ourselves not from the shoes of the disciples, but from the mat of the, the, the lame man begging at the temple. And so the first thing I want us to see as we're considering that this morning is the contrasting nature of his needs. The contrasting nature of his needs, he's obviously unable to walk. And scripture would say later on in the book of Acts that this man references was over 40 years old and he was lame from birth. And so you do the math, it's at least 40 years of sitting by the road begging, sitting at the temple gate begging. And because he didn't work, or because he couldn't walk, he, he didn't work. And because he didn't work, he was poor and in need. But what strikes me in this, in this narrative is what is the thing that he asks Peter and John for? Money. But he couldn't walk. Does that like blow anyone else's mind? Like if you've got a chance to ask someone for help, especially someone involved in the church, and like, he relegated himself to this point of saying, I have a greater need, but I'd rather just treat the symptom. And I just wonder for you and for me, if there's not somewhere in that, that you and I can relate. That we can relate because he, he certainly needed money. That's not a joke. That's not any sort of like uh, dramatic interpretation. He needed money, but he also couldn't walk. And I wonder for you and for me, 
how many times it is that for us, we, um, in some ways, we, we become so focused on something so small. We become focused on something in our lives that, man, if God would just do that, then I would be fine. If God would just take care of this, then I would be fine. And ultimately, we spend so much time not focused on what God could do, but asking God more for what we want him to do, thus spending an inordinate amount of time asking God to change something about our other gods. God, if you would just fix that, if you would just do that, if you would just take care of that, then I would be fine. Understanding that we are trading in what could have been received from God in this story, that what could have been received, but instead he's just asking for money to get through the day. And so in asking for money, he showed that he was really only interested in improving his current condition, not realizing that God, through these men, was willing to change his condition entirely. How many of you know Ephesians 3.20 says that we celebrate a God who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Mark Batterson in his book, The Circle Maker, says that big prayers, bold prayers, actually honor God because it shows our vast amount of faith that we have in him to be able to do what we are praying for. Your big prayers don't scare God. He's not thinking, well, how am I gonna work that out? He's honored by them because it shows that you actually believe that he's able to do it. Moving forward into verse eight, it says, so the man jumped up and started to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. And so they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. I love the man's response, simple as it is. Dude gets legs for the first time in his life and run straight into the temple. How many of you know when God does something in your life, you've got a story to tell? You're responsible for what it is that God has done in your life. But beyond that, for us, I think oftentimes as we're staring at, at this, this text and thinking, how does it apply to me? How, how, what do I do with this? Understanding that this man has now been given a story, he walks into the temple the people start to see that. Oftentimes, I think for stories like this, if we're honest, it gets a little bit difficult for us to relate. Is that just me in the room? Is this not a safe place? For me, it's a little bit, it's hard to relate sometimes because I, I don't see this kind of stuff happen every day. So plug that into Clearview just for a second. Imagine right out here at 537 Franklin Road, there's a man sitting on a mat at the road for 40 years. This church is under 40 years old. So from the beginning of this church, man had just been sitting there begging for money. And then imagine one day we come in here, 9.30 in the chapel or in the worship center, and we just kind of get settled in and we're ready to go. And all of a sudden, this man carrying his mat comes walking in to the venue. And with him, he's walking with Brian Hatcher and Alexis Cruz saying, these guys have healed me because they're the most spiritual on our team. Um, and so these guys have, have, have healed me, right? How mind-blowing would that be? Because at first you'd be like, okay, I, I, I know that guy from somewhere. I can't figure it out. He's carrying a mat. Does he do yoga? Like, what's, what's the deal? And then you start thinking, oh, my goodness. I know where I know him from. Has anybody ever had that before? 
my dad is like the world's worst. Like he'll go to a restaurant and see someone that he thinks he knows and walks up and literally just goes, how do I know you? My dad, you're gonna get punched in the nose. Like what is, what is the deal? But it's this moment where they begin to recognize, right? Like, oh, hold on, it's that guy. I'll be honest with you, if that happened here today, if that, if that situation had gone on and then this guy comes walking in and I thought he'd been crippled and handicapped for all his life and he comes walking in, I, my first response would be skepticism. Well, maybe he was just faking it. Until I remember that paying the price of faking it for 40 years is pretty high. And then as I begin to kind of hear his story, I'm beginning to believe, hold on, there's something crazy that's happened here. And then it's in that moment that my mind becomes flooded with questions. And some of them are very, very simple. Like who in the world is carrying this guy to the gate called Beautiful? Why did he want to go to the gate called Beautiful? Better yet, why, who named the gate Beautiful? Like, I feel like the guy who named the gate Beautiful was late to that staff meeting and was like responsible. Hey, have you come up with a name? And he's like, well, it's a beautiful gate. And they're like, love it. We're going with that. Like, a lot of questions. But then my mind turns to the question that really keeps me circulating around this. And it's the haunting question. What if they were wrong? Like, what if Peter and John in this, this moment didn't have the power they thought they did? Like, how humiliating would that be? This guy, they roll up to the temple and this guy's like, hey man, can you give me something? He said, man, I don't carry cash, sorry. He said, but you know what I can do? Here, get up. And the man starts to get up and he falls. He looks up, confused. And then Peter's like, he backs up and he says, oh, try now. And he gets up. And he falls again. Eventually, this guy's gonna look up at Peter and be like, hey man, like, are you just playing like a mean joke on me? Like, are you just like a jerk? Like, is, like, is this supposed to be funny? So the risk that Peter takes in this moment to say, get up, I, my, my question just becomes, what, what if they're wrong? Like, how did they know that they could do this? I mentioned earlier that Trevor Gehring is, is gonna be a part of this morning. And so he's gonna come and kind of bring some insight into maybe what it was that, led to this moment. Trevor Gehring, ladies and gentlemen. Well, good morning, church. Again, my name is Trevor Gehring, and I'm the student ministry associate here. And as Graham mentioned earlier, he, the last time he was in here was when they voted on him. The last time I was in here, I have never been in here. So... <laughs> I am incredibly excited to be here with you this morning. Um, you should have seen the face, uh, the look on my face when the choir was singing. That's not something I get to experience a lot. So that was an incredible moment for me. I, I thoroughly enjoy being in here. So thank you very much. And as Graham talked about, we're going to quickly transition into the power that we see from Jesus and ultimately that we saw with Peter and John. And so if you would look in Luke chapter eight with me, the great thing about Luke compared to Acts is they have the same author. And so we are excited to be able to see a seamless transition in the text and the way that it's written from Luke into Acts. And so if you would look with me in Luke chapter eight, we're not gonna go through the entire text because we do have a, a limited amount of time with us going back and forth, but we're gonna talk about a couple of different stories and what I believe might be the busiest day of Jesus's life. This is one of those days where he just woke up and immediately started doing miracles all around him. And so we see from the start in uh, verse 22 of chapter eight in Luke, we see them on a boat. 
And so Jesus says, let's cross over the river of the lake and let's go to the other side. And so while they're in the boat, an incredible storm comes up and all the men on the boat are absolutely terrified. Meanwhile, they're freaking out about an incredible storm. Jesus is asleep on the boat. And I love that because it's, it, it shows the peace that Jesus has within him all the time. You never see him confused or even uncertain about what is going on around him. And today, in Jesus' life in this day, we are going to see exactly what happens with him and the power that is within him that he eventually tells us lives in each and every one of us. And so we see them, um, they're on this boat, an incredible storm has just brewed up, and the men come to Jesus and he says, we are going to die if we do not save this boat. We are about to die in the storm. What do we do? Jesus, please help. And Jesus says, oh, where is your faith? Jesus stands up, lifts his arm, and commands the wind and the waves to stop. And by all accounts, this is the only time that I know of in history where a man controlled nature, to where he was able to simply speak and control the wind and the waves to where they were calm. And so once this miracle is, is done, they, they land on shore, and Jesus barely takes two steps off the boat onto land when a man comes running to him. This man had been possessed by demons for an incredibly long amount of time, and this man's name was Legion, and he came to Jesus and said, please save me. These demons are controlling my life. I cannot do anything. And Jesus says, you see that group of pigs over there? I'm going to remove the demons from this man named Legion and put them in the pigs. And so two steps off the boat where Jesus had just conducted another miracle, we see another incredible moment of power within him to where he removes the demons inside this man and the incredible tragedy that had happened in this man's life. All of a sudden, he was cured and the demons were no longer living in him. And it was right at this moment that as soon as he finished with this man named Legion, another man came running to him named Jairus. And I'm sure you've heard the story of Jairus many, many times. This is a father. He was a leader in a, a local synagogue. And he came to Jesus and he said, he fell at his feet and he said, Jesus, please come and help me. I only have one daughter and she's 12 years old and she's dying. And so Jesus didn't really know what was going to happen when they got off that boat. And all of a sudden we see, <clears throat> excuse me, some incredible power coming out of Jesus. And as he and Peter and John and James and the rest of the disciples get onto the land and they're walking with Jairus to go and find his daughter at his house, we see an incredible crowd around Jesus. In this city, it is so very busy. We see an incredible crowd to the point to where it says the crowd is crushing Jesus and the disciples. So imagine just an incredible room, maybe an amusement park, something like that, where there's just tons and tons of people kind of bumping into each other. And all of a sudden, while Jesus is being crushed in this crowd, barely can walk through, he says, who touched me? And my favorite is Peter in this moment. Of course, Peter is very close to Jesus. And of course, Peter's the one that answers him. And he says, Jesus, we're, we're in a really big crowd everyone's touching you. What, in, what are you talking about, Jesus? He says, everyone is here. Everyone's bumping into you. Everyone's touching you. Yeah, I would say someone touched you, Jesus. But this is an incredible display 
of Jesus being fully God and fully man because as someone touched him, it wasn't just a casual bump into Jesus. It was someone coming to Jesus, touching him with the faith that he could cure them and the power leaving Jesus' body is why he recognized someone touched him. It wasn't a casual bump on the shoulder. Someone came to him with the faith that Jesus could heal them, and that is what he felt. A woman who had been bleeding nonstop for years and years and years, about 12 years, she just could not stop bleeding. She heard that Jesus was coming into town, and she knew if I can get close enough to Jesus, if I can talk to Jesus, my goodness, if I can just touch Jesus, I know that he can heal me. And so this is exactly what happens. As Jesus isn't trying to, to heal anyone in this crowd, he is trying to go with Jairus and the rest of the disciples to his house. A woman touches him, an incredible moment of power, again, from Jesus, heals this woman. And as Jesus asks, who has touched me? Peter says, everybody has. He says, no, power has left me. Someone touched me in faith. And so we see this incredible woman stand up, being cured from her bleeding, come and say to him, I know that power, he, Jesus says, I know that power has come out of me. And he, she comes forward and confesses, I was the one that touched you. I've been bleeding and you saved me. And Jesus says to her very simply, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so Jesus is not upset by this at any, by any means because he knows that the faith that this woman displayed by just simply coming and touching his robe the end of his room that she was healed, he knew the faith that was in this woman. And so as we move on to the next scenario in this day of Jesus' busyness with healings, he and the rest of the disciples finally get to Jairus' home. And in this moment, Jesus knows what's about to happen, and he says, Peter, John, and James, come inside with me. And the rest of them stayed outside. So the only people that are in the home right now with this dying little girl are Jesus his three main disciples, Peter, John, and James, and the child's parents. And as they were heading to the house, a man came and said, um, I'm sorry, don't worry about it anymore, Jairus. Do not worry about getting Jesus to come. Your, your daughter has, has passed away. And so as they get there, Jesus and his disciples, Peter, John, and James, head inside with the parents. And they said, I'm so sorry, your daughter is gone. And Jesus said, no, 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 she is not gone. She is simply asleep. Stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. They were not sure what he was talking about because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand, just like Grandma talked about in the previous passage. Jesus took this little girl by the hand and she woke up. The power that is within Jesus can heal a woman from bleeding, remove demons from men around him, calm the sea and the storms and the wind, and it can also bring a young child back to life. And the incredible thing is, in this moment, I'm sure with Peter, John, and James in that household with Jesus, and as they walked from the seashore into this man's house, seeing incredible displays of power within Jesus, I'm wondering if the main question that those disciples have is, do I have that power? And how do I get that power? 
not so that they can be the big man on campus, the big man in town and go around healing, but they know that the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is going around healing these people. How is it that we can do the same when we go out and share the kingdom of God? And so as you turn to Acts chapter 1 with me, we are going to look at a few verses at the beginning of Acts that tells us exactly how we have the same power that Jesus Christ had on a daily basis. And this is such a wonderful thing because as Graham mentioned, this is not a normal occurrence in our everyday lives. We don't normally see men that can't walk just hop up and walk. We don't see women that are bleeding for years and years and years just all of a sudden stop and they're healed. And we definitely do not commonly see a young girl that has passed away wake up and go on living her life. And so as we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, we see the final things that Jesus said in his time here on earth. This is moments before he ascends to heaven after his crucifixion and resurrection. And so in verse chapter, or, uh, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4, we see, While he was with them, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, You have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Jerusalem? I'm sorry, to Israel at this time? And these are Jesus' final words here on earth. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this morning as we look at the story of Jesus healing people in a very busy day, healing them from sickness and raising a young child back to life, The power that we saw on display in Jesus' life in Acts chapter 1, we know Jesus has told us we have that same power. My goodness, we know that the Holy Spirit lives and works in us. And we know that in the same way Jesus and the disciples healed those around them, we know that that same power is in us because when Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, the power of the Holy Spirit came into us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so we know that that power has incredible capabilities in this world, but it is up to us to understand God's word and the power of that Holy Spirit as we move forward. So as Graham closes us out, we see what it looks like to use that power. Does anybody think he believes it? Hey, uh, what's interesting about these two texts, um, specifically the one Trevor mentioned in in Luke chapter eight, uh, and what we see in Acts chapter three to kind of bring that back to, to how we know the early church was working so that we know how to work, there are a couple of similarities that are almost eerie in the sense that I think you and I would do well to, to pick up on, to understand. The first is the very specific wording of the miracle. He mentioned the healing of Jairus' daughter, Jesus, and the guys going in. And in Luke chapter eight and verse 54, it says, so Jesus took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. And then in Acts chapter three, Peter 
reaching down, says, it says in verse seven, then taking him by the hand, he raised him up. And at, at once his feet and ankles became strong. In both of these cases, Peter and John having seen Jesus do it, and then them doing it themselves. In both of these cases, the person receiving the miracle received a personal touch. They received a personal touch, and they were specifically taken by the hand. Why? Because there's a significant difference between a hand out and a hand up. A hand out can change a day. A hand up can change a life. And before you think that I'm headed in a direction of we shouldn't give money to people begging on the street because they shouldn't get a job, it's dangerous thinking. But before I get down that road too far and you think this is some sort of a political or some sort of a you know, philosophical statement, all I'm telling you is that there is a vast difference between pity on someone and ministry for and to someone. William Lesore said this, he said, the church's role in this world is not simply to make the present condition more bearable. The task of the church is to release here on earth the redemptive work of God in Christ. So no, this is not a statement on whether physical needs need to be met or not, and we should just give people tracts instead of tips at the restaurant or anything like that. No, oftentimes Jesus would actually meet the physical need before he ever addressed the spiritual one. And so for, for you and I to consider what it looks like to do ministry together, our work of ministry on this earth is so much more. It is a work of healing, of hope, of love, and ultimately of life change. Therefore, we will never become who it is, the church that God has called out with our spare change and our spare time. Charitable contributions and just make some time for this or that. I think if we're totally honest, and this is where I'm gonna step off for a second and I may get the emails from you, graham at clearview.org. I think if we're totally honest, Part of the reason, the disconnect, the, the, the reason that we are more apt to, um, to, to be that way and just give the handout and move on is because that's easier. For some of us in the room, we'd rather write the check than make the time. Why? Because it's easier. I'll just write that off and file it away in my tax report. And I'll move on because we're so busy and we're so spread out and we're so saturated and overcommitted that the last thing we have to give is spare time. There is none. Which brings me to my second and final similarity that I pull out of these texts that are hopefully helpful to us this morning. Peter and John on the way to the temple to go do the religious thing, to go pray, the, the hour of sacrifice at three o'clock. Jesus, Trevor mentioned, has got like the busiest 24, 48 hours of his life, right? Like there's all these different things that come onto the calendar at the last minute. What's the common denominator in both of these sections? Jesus doing it and then Peter watching and then him doing it. What's the common denominator? It's interruption. Is interruption. 
In both cases of ministry taking place, the person performing the ministry had to allow themselves to be interruptible. The calendar had to be freed up on their journey. See, all throughout the book of Acts, we see unreal things happen in the early church. Miracles taking place, all kinds of people getting healed, crazy stuff happening that would blow Facebook up. And so we see all of that happen. And and I'm just wondering if the same God who was presiding over that church and had empowered that church is the same God that we're in this room with today, then where is it? Why is it not happening? Why do we not see this anymore? Why is it weird to us? And in some ways, why do we condemn it when we see it? Because it weirds us out. Why? Can I just be totally transparent and honest with you this morning? The fear that literally keeps me up at night, literally keeps me up at night, is that we, as the American church, have become so saturated with activity and overcommitted to everything that this world has to offer that we've left no room for God to do anything. Maybe we're content for God to be in control, but it really would be good if it happened between nine and 12 on Sunday. And it needs to be done by 12 because I've got that tea time today. Or God, I guess he could use me on Tuesday afternoon, but we've got soccer that night. And so if we could hustle, that'd be awesome. Or, you know, maybe it's more of like, a, I mean, I'll, I'll teach if I could, but man, the, the Titans are in town. And before you think I'm just stepping all over everybody's toes and I, all those things are good things, but here's the truth, church. When the good thing becomes the main thing, the main thing will never be the best thing. When the good thing, not inherently bad, becomes the main thing, then the main thing will never be the best thing. Our lives become so calendared and programmed that we have calendared and programmed the Holy Spirit right out of them. And before you sit in the seat and tell me, well, look, man, like this is your job, right? Like you get paid to be churchy. And so like maybe step off my life for a minute. Not all of us get that luxury, right? Can I tell you that this is a conviction that born out of my spirit before I ever brought it to the platform? I was talking to my wife the other night, just kind of running these thoughts out just to make sure that I didn't come across a certain way or that I'm just passionate, man. And I got done kind of theorizing and, you know, theologizing or whatever the word would be. And she looked at me, she said, I mean, that's definitely our lives. I work for a church and she works for Lifeway and it's our lives. I'm not immune to it. All of us at some point along the way get so saturated and spread out that we become shells of who it is that God could and has called us to be. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everybody in the room should quit their job and come live with us here at the church. We, that would be really interesting. Um, there is room in the end, ladies and gentlemen. And so, um, but I'm not suggesting that everybody just quit their jobs and come in this room and sing Kumbaya six nights a week. Like that's not what I'm, I'm pushing. I'm not even suggesting that you pull your kids out of sports. I'm not suggesting that the Titans game's not a good idea to take your family to, though the Titans are not worth much right now. <clears throat> you might be better off sticking with us here. 
And so I'm not suggesting that all of those things are bad things, but like I said, when a good thing becomes the only thing, the main thing, then it will never, you'll never do the best thing. When uh, Catherine and I got married, we had conversations about our, our financial stuff and getting our savings tuned right and retirement and things like that, just trying our best to kind of get a head start on things. And one of the things our financial planner was talking to us about was building margin into our monthly budget. And this margin for me, I, I have a business degree, but I never really did like personal finance and retirement strategies and investments and all that. And so I was intrigued by this and I was asking uh, Sean, who's our financial advisor, I was, I was asking him, so tell me about margin. Like, is that savings? Like, is that, you know, is that something that I'm supposed to put away somewhere? What is, he was like, no, that, that's really for us in our minds, it's after your savings. So you have your expenses and then you have like what you know you're contributing to your retirement and to a health savings account and to college funds for your kids one day and all of that. And then at the end of that month, that money is what we call margin. I was like, so what is that used for, right? Like, can I go to the Titans game with that? Like, is that something that I could make happen to get that second corn dog at the game or what? And he said, well, sometimes, and I'll never forget this. And he didn't know he was preaching to my heart in this moment. But he said, no, margin sometimes can be used where it's wanted. But having margin allows you to also spend it where it's needed. And I became a puddle on the floor of Northwestern Mutual. Because I began to think, man, with my calendar and how busy I can be, it takes a lot to run this stuff here. We did like 10 hours of like game night and gentry farm with middle schoolers yesterday and I passed out at like nine o'clock and then Catherine's like, you ready to preach tomorrow? And I was like, praise the Lord, right? It's busy, man. And I don't think I'm alone in the room today. It's tough. But for you and for me, the margin will give us the ability to see the power of the interruption. What if Peter and John would have kept walking? What if Jesus was restricted to say, man, I've only got this one, I've already, Jairus is already hanging out with us, so sorry. What if he's so busy that he just doesn't have the time? Maybe next week. Come back later. Do we see anything that we see today in the scripture? I don't know. And so pastor, as we close, pastor's been talking about over the last few weeks, the Acts chapter two, the, the section about the apostles being devoted in that they met almost every single day for worship. The old tent revivals, but just seven days a week, praise the Lord. And so we we're talking about this idea of being, last week, God clingers, being devoted. But I would submit to you, church, that in order to be devoted, you have to be available. And in order to be available, you have to be interruptible. That is not so one track focused, not so determined tunnel vision on the one thing that you can't be interrupted, taken off course for a moment to do the work of ministry along the way. What's interesting about the, the passage in, in Luke eight with Jesus is that everybody that came to him was completely convinced that they were the most important person in his life. Like, I know that person has a problem, but I promise mine is bigger, and here's why. 
Every single person that tried to get on the calendar convinced him that this, I am the most important person in your life right now. And I wonder if for you and for me, there are things in our lives that are that way, that have convinced us that this is a non-negotiable, we have to do it. And over time, it becomes so full that if you're not Jesus, you can't balance it. And I'm not. Shocker, right? And so for you and for me, as we're kind of thinking through our application here, what it is that we might be called towards, the action point, if you will, I would encourage you, listen, I'm I'm not in, in any way, I'm not a parent. I'm not, I'm not in tune with, I know how busy our students are, but I don't know what it's like. And so I'm not gonna stand up here and act like I know it all. But here's what I know is that all of these people in the early church, a lot of them were parents. A lot of them had kids. A lot of them had other commitments. They had jobs, but they were committed because they were available. And because they were available, they could be interrupted. And when they were interrupted, extended the hand, pulled it up because that's where the power is and the personal touch. And you have to have the time for the personal touch. So our role is the church. This is exactly what it is that God has called us to today. And I'm wondering if the things that have crept into our minds and our hearts and the most important thing has caught, I just don't even wanna know what it's cost us and what it will continue to cost us if we don't take inventory of our lives to find out where is it that I can be used? What's robbing me of my time so that I could give more to the kingdom? Is what you are living for worth what Christ died for? As we bow together in prayer, um, we're gonna have um, some music playing behind us. And I just wanna encourage you just for a moment to consider your own life. Again, I, I don't know everybody in the room and I don't know everybody's story and how many things are on the calendar, how many kids you might have, how many different obligations are on your schedule and what's even negotiable, I don't know. But I know what the main thing is. And so as you kind of assume that posture of, of, of introspective prayer with the Lord, reflective time with him, man, I would just encourage you, take inventory of your heart. God, where, what has become the main thing in my life? What's the focus? And is it you? And if it's not, then where does it need to be? Well, where do I, what do I take? Where's the margin? How do I cut the fat out of the budget of my time to be more useful and effective? for your kingdom's work. So just take 60 seconds maybe and just kind of take inventory. The music will begin to play and we're just gonna kind of have a little bit of a family moment together. Um, where we're just kind of taking, taking that inventory and we'll, we'll see what God reveals to us. Hey, if anything in this sermon series or teaching series helped you, would you do us a favor? Email the link to a friend. Post it on Facebook. Tweet it out. I'm telling you, you'd be surprised at how often God can use you to reach somebody in a similar situation that just needs an injection of truth or encouragement or hope to move them further down the road in their walk with God. And always know, if you need us, you can go to clearview.org and contact us and somebody will be in touch.